Welcome to the Progressive Property Podcast, helping you invest in property for freedom, choice, and profit. You'll learn new, innovative, and multiple streams of property income, whether you want to start, scale, or systemize, and even if you don't have deposits. Hello, Mark Homer here for Mark My Words. I've got a really special guest here today. I've got Chris Wilkins, our our company accountant. I've known Chris for a number of years. He's he's a bit of a boffin when it comes to tax. He's dealt with the inland revenue. He's dealt with some, you know, some really high net worth, very profitable companies for a long time. And he, he just knows all the little twists and turns and he can be quite robust when, say, challenged by HMRC or you know, uh, other people, and he really, really sort of gets the detail, and um, and the result is often, you know, we all end up with a, a lower tax bill. So, so Chris, welcome. Great to have you here. Thanks. So, Chris, one of the big things that's been happening in the last, well, since 2016, is the, obviously, the stamp duty changes with purchasing buy-to-let and, and second homes. And that's an extra 3%. And we don't really think there's much we can do about that. So you've sort of just got to soak it up, pay it, maybe get a little bit off the, off the purchase price. But an even bigger change has been these, the inability to offset the mortgage interest against the rent. If you own properties in your personal name or in a partnership or in an LLP. But I understand there are you know, a, a few things that we can do, some, some ways around that you know, for, for, for certain people. So firstly, what are the changes and how do they work? I was saying to um, a client of mine recently that I've been self-employed now for over 30 years and there's probably been more property changes in the last three years or four years if you go back to the advent of ATED, Annual Tax and Envelope Dwellings, which came in for property valuations in April 12, but came in in 2013. But with regards to the, uh, the changes, my biggest concern is although the Chancellor said that it won't affect a lot of buy-to-let owners, a lot of them actually don't realise how bad the ramifications are. And I don't think they actually realise how it will affect them tax-wise. So to give you an idea, a um, potential client rang up today, said one of your clients referred me to you, but this doesn't really affect me because I'm a basic rate taxpayer, so I don't think this is going to be an issue. But anyway, my friend said I should ring you. So we, we explained it to them. And some of this is quite wide-ranging, and so to sort of give you an idea, say the, the cusp of paying high-rate tax is about £43,000, so you get 11000 personal allowance, 32000 basic rate tax yeah. band. So say I've got a salary of £43,000, and at the moment, let's just assume I've got one buy-to-let property, and I have rental income, let's say £20,000, and let's say my own expense is mortgage interest, 20000 so therefore, I only have a taxable profit of £43,000 as things stand at the moment. The new legislation, when it takes full effect, and it's commencing on the 6th of April 17, and it will take the full effect over a four-year period, i.e. 25% in 17, 18, 50%, etc., etc. So what happens is when the full effect takes, comes in, the rental income in that scenario would all be taxed at 40%, the 20,000 rental income, but I'm only going to get tax relief on my mortgage interest at 20%. Now, what people don't realise is that at that level, I've got a salary of 43,000 and I've got another 20,000 rental income. That means that for my two children, at the moment, I claim higher income child benefit charge. And I'm not taxed on that because my taxable income is 43,000. 
the new rule means that I'm, my taxable income will be 63 and I would just get a tax credit at 20% on the mortgage interest. So now I'll have to pay back all that high, that child benefit tax charge that I get free at the moment. So you, in effect, you're only going to be able to offset about half of the mortgage interest in simple terms. Is that right? Well, it depends how you structure it, but the chances are that you may do that. I mean, there's some scenarios where, say, I had dividend income, I wouldn't even get the 20% tax credit because I haven't paid tax at 20%, so I'm not going to even get as much back as that. So if you look at work through some of these examples, they, are, they can be pretty penalising, and I don't think... I think what will happen is that come 6th of April 18, people will then get their 17-18 tax return, they'll start filling it in, and um, when they get the tax calculator out or get it from their accountant, they'll get a tax bill and they'll start thinking, well, no, this is an error. And then we'll start getting the phone calls saying, I don't think this is right, the, the revenue computer's wrong or the calculator mm. system's wrong or my accountant's got it wrong. And they won't realise that that's the thin end of the wedge. And then it will just get progressively worse until four years' time you don't get any of that. Risk. So it's going to be phased in over four years. And, and for my listeners who have listened to my podcast recently, you'll know that these changes are going to affect most buy-to-let investors who have got mortgages on them. There are a small number of people that this won't affect at all. Is that right? And who are they? Yeah, so, I mean, what happens is I have a number of clients who, who have come to me pretty much saying, look, we need to get out of this problem. And I understand you can incorporate to get out of it. And I said, well, wait a minute, let's just work out the numbers. So um, what happens is obviously the best tax planning is done in advance, not in arrears. So when you sit there and work through the numbers, there's things you can affect, such as, so we go back to my example, I've got a, a chap, let's assume he's married, earning 43,000. The wife may be a housewife working at home. Now, yes, he would be detrimentally affected, but there may be ways that we can investigate this to make sure that they're not detrimentally affected by this, clause, what we call Clause 24. And Clause 24 was what George Osborne announced in July 15, that it's going to come into effect from the 6th of April 17. So in that scenario, then basically what happens is we may be able to transfer the property from the husband to the wife. And the reason you can do that is because they're married. So there's no crystallisation of capital gain when it's transferred between spouses. So A, they've got to be married. If they are just cohabiting couples, then that won't work. Now, if you transfer it, then what you're basically doing is that the 20,000 rental income and 20,000 mortgage interest, which is taxed on the husband, we're basically moving that to the wife. Now, you could find a way where that won't affect them at all because they aren't, they aren't being hit by Clause 24. However, whilst capital gains means it doesn't crystallise a capital gains tax bill, you've got to be very careful about SDLT. Now, there's no SDLT, that's stamp duty land tax, on gifts. However, if there's consideration, there is SDLT. Now, you could say, well, there won't be consideration because it's between husband and wife. But consideration is also deemed to be mortgage. So if husband transfers the mortgage to the wife, then that's the consideration. So SDLT could kick in on that. So you don't avoid the whole lot, but you've got to look at it. I mean, there's other scenarios, say for the sake of argument, this client that came to me, and I said, well, what's your plans you're going to do? And he said, well, actually, I'm going to retire in um, two years' time. And then when we looked at it, he said, well, what about your pension? Well, I don't have to take my pension. OK, well, how about we defer you take your pension? 
You won't have your PAYE salary in two years' time. So there's a window for us to take advantage of that. And maybe some people may not have a very big mortgage or they may decide to pay some mortgages off. So there are probably some other scenarios where people don't, you know, might not be very much affected, if at all, by this. Yeah, I mean, you're only going to be affected if you incur mortgage interest. Yeah. Um, but even then, there may be a way of some financial engineering. So some clients have got other businesses that yeah. they've got in a partnership. They may be able to restructure their loans so that they're moving their loans to an environment where they get 100% tax relief on mm. the interest That's interesting. to one where they wouldn't. Yeah. So we do some restructuring. We do some um, moving properties between husband and wife, and, and you can do that. Sorry, I'm laughing because I read a case recently about a man, I think it was Mr. Rashid, that sent his tax return into the revenue and his wife's tax return. And he put all the rental income down on the wife's name and said, look, we've agreed, so that's so she's going to pay the tax on it. And the revenue said, well, it doesn't work like that because we've got to agree to it as well. And then what happened is they said, if you're husband and wife, then it's going to be taxed 50-50. So that means that whether you like it or not, the husband is going to pay 50% of the tax liability on that rental income because your spouse is. However, depending on how you own the properties, could own as tenants in common, could have declarations of trust, but the most important thing is you must have something called a Form 17. And a Form 17 says to the revenue, we don't, we don't want your normal rule of 50-50 split between spouses to work. We want to disapply that and this is how we want it to work. And you have to send that to the revenue within 60 days of you signing it. And so you can't be retrospective. It's got to be in advance, not in arrears. And also you have to send them the declaration of trust to justify that it's actually been drawn up properly. When did that Form 17 get introduced? Form 17 has been around for a number of years. Yeah. It's just that people aren't aware of it. And yeah. some people think that bit like a partnership, you and I in partnership, yeah. we can split the profits however we want. Mm. But with rental income, it, you can't do that. You can't say it's got to be the beneficial, the beneficial owner has got to be the one taking. So if you've got a tenants, a property owned tenants in common, you might have, you know, the, the man who owns 70% of it and the, the wife who owns 30% or vice versa. And then, you know, the, the, there'd be some sort of declaration of trust between the two of them, which would identify that split and the Form 17, which needs completing. And then I, I presume the rental income has to be distributed in those percentages. Yeah, I mean, you can have, you can have a, a, a joint account. Yeah. And the most important thing is that um, you actually tell the revenue how you want it split in advance, yeah. and you have to send them the declaration of trust. So it has to be drawn up properly. And it's not something that you start thinking about at the end of the tax year when you get your tax bill yeah. and says, can we change it? Because it's too late then. They tell you, you could do it for the following year, but you can't do it for the previous year. Clearly, here we're talking about spouses and, you know, it's quite easy to move, you know, equity or beneficial interest between spouses without stamp duty or CGT because they're married. Um, apart from stamp duty on the mortgage. If apart moved. from the stamp duty on the mortgage. But if you were talking about two business partners or, you know, maybe you, you, you're going to transfer your properties to, you know, a limited company... Can you just transfer them without paying capital gains tax and stamp duty or, or, or is it liable in the first instance or are you liable in the first instance? Well, the general rule is that let's just say I want to give my property to my son. So I've got to buy to let property, I'll give it to my son. I say, look, don't worry, don't give me any money. The revenue will say, yeah, of course you can do that. But it's because you're connected parties, whether he pays me any money or not, 
the transaction is deemed to be at market value. Mm. And so therefore, if you work on that assumption, if I transfer properties to my limited company, I'm connected. It's my company and my property. Therefore, the market value is deemed to be the sale price. Then what you have to do is work out what the capital gain is. So the capital gain will be the, the market value less the cost. And then what happens, if I transfer it to my limited company, I've got a capital gains bill. So the problem with that is immediately I would crystallise a capital gain. Now, you could say, well, that's not too bad because capital gains tax was reduced on the 6th of April down to 20%. If you're a basic rate taxpayer, you haven't used your basic rate tax band, 10%. Well, to start with, the 10% is only on the unused element of the basic rate tax band, then you're into 20%. But more importantly, they didn't reduce capital gains tax from mm. the rate of 28% from residential property. So you're still paying the full 28% whack on residential not on commercial property, but on residential, unlike every other asset that you make money out of or capital gain on. Correct. So then what you've got to do is see if there's a way to actually make sure that you don't crystallise the gain. Because if you crystallise a gain at 28%, Hmm. so roughly speaking in London, they say that London property prices double every 10 years. So you get the classic scenario where um, a lady might have bought a property in the 60s for £13,000, it might be worth hundreds of thousands yeah. of pounds now, or London could be millions. And then you think, well, wait a minute, I haven't got, I'm just moving a property from me to my company, so I actually haven't got any cash spare mm. to pay a tax bill. And the last thing I want to do is crystallise a tax bill. So the question then is, how do I, how do I avoid the crystallisation? And there's a case that is very useful for tax practitioners called Elizabeth Moyne Ramsey. Mm. And what that basically does is if you work on the precedent that you're going to create a, a, a capital gain, then the point is that you would like to try and invoke something called Section 162. Section 162 is incorporation relief. And what that basically says is, is that if you are a business, and, and it's important to bear in mind that a business hasn't got the same hurdle as a trade. So trade is defined in the Taxes Act, a business isn't. Now, if you are a business, then you can claim Section 162 incorporation relief. But the question is, what is a business? So if for the sake of an argument, I say, well, look, I've got one rental property. I work full time. I'm an accountant. Well, that, the revenue would always deem that to be an investment property, not a trade and not a business. Mm. So therefore, it cannot ever be Section 162. I can't invoke that. However, I've got some clients that have got 50, 60 properties. They've got full-time staff, they're working on them. Well, then that is a business. So the question is, from there to there, where are we on that scale? And whereabouts does it trigger a business? If it triggers a business, then you can invoke Section 162. Then you can move the properties from you personally to your limited company and not crystallise a capital gains tax bill. So that's quite interesting, isn't it? Because I think herein is we're, we're sort of getting to the nub of the issue. This is the magic, isn't it? We know there are a lot of people who have got properties in their own names. And, you know, the, these, these properties are probably historical. They usually buy to let properties. So they're caught in this trap where, you know, Clause 24 says that over the next four years, they're, they're not going to be able to offset all of the mortgage interest against the rent. It's going to get progressively worse each year. But what we, what we would quite like to do is to transfer those properties from their own names to a limited company. And I think you're giving us a potential route to do that without incurring capital gains tax. Yeah. So what you've got to bear in mind is that I personally think that Moyne Ramsey at some stage will be challenged. There will be other cases coming through. 
Moyne Ramsey is what I'd call a paper-thin case. So this case was taken by the lady's son to the first-tier tribunal, and uh, they lost at the first-tier tribunal. So to give you an example, it's a block of flats, 10 flats, and what happened is five of them were let at the stage. Now, the contention was that Elizabeth and her husband spent 20 hours a week, which is a high hurdle. So you've got to think, well, basically a business, they, the, the um, judge burner said in the upper tribunal, said that let's look at the, the um, dictionary definition of a business. It's, it's something you do in earnest endeavour. Now, the point is, therefore, in this case, they had to justify they did at least 20 hours because if you've got properties and you don't do any work in them, then the point is it's it's not a business. The question that hasn't been tested is if you get agents to do all the work and you sit back and don't get involved in it, whether that would be classed as a business, and that wasn't tested. So the first-tier tribunal threw it out. The reason I think it got thrown out is they concentrated more on inheritance tax relief called business property relief. Now, what business property relief says is that if I die today, my shares in my trading limited company will not suffer inheritance tax because it's a business. Now, there's two main capital taxes, inheritance tax and capital gains tax. And what happens is the first tier tribunal said, well, it's not a business because it wouldn't qualify for business property relief. Therefore, we we don't think we're going to give you this relief. And therefore, they lost. What the upper tribunal said is that, well, I appreciate that, but we're not looking at it from an inheritance tax angle. This is a capital gains tax. Mm. It is a capital tax. And and we actually agree, and and there's been a subsequent case on this, that we actually agree that it wouldn't qualify for BPR because it's not a trade. Now, but however, a lesser hurdle is business. And if it qualifies as a business, we think you can get section 162 incorporation relief. And and it's... It's, you might call it semantics, but it's a very crucial part of tax law that you can actually understand the difference between the two as to why one fails and one doesn't. Mm. So I think what we're getting to here is, Chris, you very much understand the detail of this. I mean, I understand the, the sort of top line and, you know, the basic way in which this works, but you've drilled right into the way the legislation works and, and, and the legal nuances which have been tested at these tax tribunals. In the second tier, I understand that Elizabeth Moy Ramsey won, so they took a different view. Why was that? Basically what happens is that the, the first tier tribunal said that it wasn't a business. Now the question is, in the upper tribunal, they said, well, let's have a look at what a business is, let's look at the dictionary definition, and we really want to know I guess what I'd call it is, do you get your hands dirty? Yeah. How many hours do you spend? Yeah. So Elizabeth Warren Ramsey said that we actually spend our time factor of 20 hours. We do fence posts. Yeah. We change the fence. We, we look yeah. after the tenants. We greet the new tenants. We take the old tenants out. We get references. As For us, we are really actively involved in this, and therefore we're not sort of hands-off in this. And rental income, like I say, is passive. We're saying, no, we're, we're more than passive, and we think that we do enough to make it active, and therefore we make a business out of this. And I think that basically, if going back to this scale, Elizabeth Moyne Ramsey had five properties that rented out at that time out of ten, I think you'd be pushing your luck if you had two or three, because I, I suspect that the tribunal would say that is not a business. Mm. So, but then again, it could always be challenged. I mean, in fact, there was a case in 2015 where what happened is that they did a settlement into a trust. If you do a settlement into a trust of property, 
that can trigger an IHT charge. And they definitely did that because then they want to claim BPR relief. Mm. And therefore what they did is they then triggered BPR relief on the basis that they, they followed the fact that they thought that it would be subject to tr a trade and business property relief is for a trade. But the court said no. Said that, and this pretty much follows, I think, the first-tier tribunal on Moyne Ramsey, where they said BPR relief wouldn't work, and this 2015 case said the same. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? So why do we want to transfer these properties into a limited company? The main thing is that if you actually look at the tax, if you work through the numbers, going to my, back to my example at the moment, I've got a PAYE salary of 43,000, I've got rental income of 20,000, I've got mortgage interest of 20, so I haven't got a tax bill. Mm. When the new rules come in, I'm going to have a, at least 20% tax yeah. charge on, on that income, yeah. plus I'm going to use my child benefit, and I'll, I've got two children, I have to pay that back. And oh, by the way, my wife gets the child benefit and I, the husband, will have the tax bill. So she's going to keep that and I'm going to pay the tax. And what happens if we take the numbers a bit more and we go into 100%, yeah. £100,000, sorry, over £100,000, I'm going to lose my personal allowance of £11,000. And on that marginal rate, so actually £2 of extra income, I use £1 of personal allowance, my marginal rate there is 60% tax. So this can get really bad. So when you transfer the properties into a limited company, you can offset all of the mortgage interest, effectively? Not necessarily. So the way it works is that if I bought properties for, let's just use some big numbers, so I yeah. bought them for a million pounds, yeah. and I bought them in the 70s, yeah. and I got mortgages then of 800,000 mm. pounds. Now they're worth five million. Yeah. So um, I just go to the building society and I'll, I'll borrow five million pounds yeah. and they'll be kind enough to lend it. So I'll claim tax relief on yeah. it, won't I? No. The way it works is you can only claim tax relief on the purchase price of the property or the value of the property when it first went in to be rented out. You cannot continually remortgage your portfolio and claim tax relief on the interest. Mm, that's so it's limited. Yeah. Yeah, something I've noticed over the years, um, most of the people that, you know, that, that, that I would know have got into the market, say, in the 2000s. That was when the big sort of buy-to-let push happened and buy-to-let mortgages became easier. Those that have remortgaged and continually remortgaged get to, you know, a, a level where they can't offset all the mortgage interest if, you know, if it goes above the, the, the level at which the, the property came into the lettings market, i.e. the value on the day it came into the lettings market. But a lot of them haven't gone beyond. And lots of them are able to claim the mortgage interest against the rent in their own name. So for those people, there's, a, there's an immediate advantage in moving to a limited company, I understand, because, because they're able to offset it all. Well, they are off, able to offset it, but also they get an uplift. So what happens is you go back to my scenario. Say I, I bought the properties for a million and they're now worth five million. If I put them into the limited company today, they go into the limited company at their market value today. Mm -hmm. So therefore, my market value was a million, not my base cost. I've just got an automatic uplift on that figure. Now, I've put them in the limited company. The disadvantage of that is at the moment, I can extract money by remortgaging my properties up to that figure that I can get relief on. Or if not, I'll say, well, I'll still get a relatively cheap loan. I can't get tax relief on that extra interest, but it's still cheap loan. The problem I've got is I have it in the limited company. I can't just put my hand in and take it out because it's a separate legal entity. Yeah. So you can't access that money in the same fashion as you used to. Yeah, so the, therein lies a, a, another challenge. So 
once it's in the limited company, and a lot of people are going into the limited company, how can you get the money out? How can you benefit from these properties? Well, to start with, if, I, if we go back to the million pounds, I've got a property that cost me a million pounds, I've got a mortgage of, uh, say, say 500,000. If I wanted to, I could remortgage the other 500,000 pounds and take that out on day one before I put it in the company, then I can lend it back to the company. You can take that, that bit out, then what happens so is... So you can remortgage the, the properties up to the value when it went into the limited company? Yeah, basically what, no, not the value when it goes in, yeah. is the value of the properties when they're first used in the rental business. Yeah, okay. Now, what you've got to be careful of is that this isn't the panacea to everything. Mm. Now, you are, by incorporation relief, you are deferring a capital gain by, by what you get in exchange is shares in a limited yeah. company. So say there's two people that own it, say you and I, mm -hmm. when we put it in the company, our shares must be in the same proportion. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a new company, you can use an existing company, yeah. but it's got to be, but you take the shares in the same proportion. Now, what happens is that by putting the properties in the company, you've got to make sure that there is equity in there. If there is no equity in there, they can't give you shares back because you're not actually giving them anything. Yeah. So to start with, you could actually crystallise a capital gain on yourself, irregardless of, sec of Section 162. Mm. So you've got to look at the scenario to start with, because there's two main things. What we haven't touched on is Section 162 is incorporation relief to ensure that the capital gain doesn't crystallise. Yeah. But you could have the crystallisation of SDLT. Mm. So that's, that's coming on to the next point. So you ordinarily, you'd have the stamp duty on the transfer plus 3% because these are buy-to-let properties. Uh, commercial properties wouldn't attract the same stamp duty. How do we get round, or, or is there a way to, is there a relief that can help us reduce that tax liability on, on, in terms of stamp duty on the transfer into a limited company? Yeah, I mean, they're the two taxes that you're most concerned with, capital gains tax and SDLT. And the thing about SDLT is what happens is that there are certain reliefs, but only if it's a partnership. So what happens is that if you are a partnership and you transfer um, the properties into a limited company, you can get a relief from the revenue. And what we normally do is we uh, get advance clearance from the revenue. Okay, so you write them a letter and say, this is what we're about to do and these are the circumstances, do you agree, can we, can we transfer them? Yeah. yeah, and I understand you do that for the, the incorporation relief as well as the, the, um, the stamp duty relief, which I think is, is it the, two, uh, the Finance Act 2003? Three. Three. Paragraph 15. Eight, sorry, yeah, Section 15, paragraphs 18 and 20. I, I think, think so, yeah. Right. yeah. So what you've got to do, though, is that that will only work if it's a partnership. Yeah. Now, the question is, if you and I own property, are we a partnership or are we joint owners of property? Now, again, you might think, well, this is a bit semantics, but joint owners is not a partnership, therefore you, no, you won't get the STLT relief. So in some instances, what we suggest is that actually you and I transfer the properties to an LLP, a limited liability partnership, because that is defined as a partnership. The accounts are filed at company's house, you have to prepare financial statements, and that is a partnership as defined. Mm. If we uh, have them together, yeah. we might be joint owners, so you might put half of that rental income on your tax return yeah. and I might put yeah. half, rather than doing a partnership set of accounts. Yeah. And the difference is one would get STLT relief and one wouldn't. 
but sometimes joint owners do get SDLT relief. Yeah. What so, are, what, under what circumstances? So what we do is that we've got um, sometimes it's it comes down to the presentation to the revenue. Yeah. Because what you've got to do is you've got to steer a path to make sure you qualify with Moyne Ramsey section yeah. one six two. Yeah. But also you qualify with SDLT relief. So you've got to explain what the partners do in the business, yeah. and why they should get that relief, why they're eligible. Yeah. So to give you an idea, say. So you've got 10 properties yeah. in Scotland and I've got one property in Kensington. Yeah. Same rental income, so therefore we'll both qualify. Well, no. The reason is because A, I'm not running a business because I've got one property. Yeah. It's not the size of the rental income yeah. that's different. It's am I running a business. So the amount of time you spend in it, what you do, are you doing refurbs, are you talking to tenants, are you collecting rent, all that stuff that makes it a business. Yeah, so yeah. so the quantum isn't the important thing. It, it's it's how involved are you, how many units, how many properties. Yeah. And like yeah. I say, you've got to have at least five yeah. uh, from the Moyne Ramsey case. And then with the SDLT, the only way that will work is you must be partners. So there must be at least two of you. If there's one of you, it doesn't work. It's a problem. Yeah. yeah. So some people are moving into LLPs first. Say you've got one individual. Can they potentially transfer into an LLP for a period of time and then subsequently, I think it's three years, maybe move to a limited company? Well, to start with, you've got to be careful that you don't crystallise another tax mm. because an LLP needs two members. So you must have at least two of you, you must be in partnership. If you put the properties in there, you've got to have some considerations on capital gains tax, yeah. uh, who's going to own the properties. You may have seen that on some of the property websites, there's these businesses that say, well, actually what happens is that you can transfer them in, not tell the mortgage company, yeah. and basically it's a declaration of trust. And yeah. what they're saying is that we're moving the properties into a yeah. partnership or a limited company. That's the beneficial owner. I have the mortgage in my name is the nominee. Yeah. So with a lot of these things, you've got to be slightly careful because whilst I'm talking from a tax angle, you've got to bear in mind that if I put the properties in a limited company, the limited company has then got to take the loan. Yeah. And with some of my clients, you may know more, but some of my clients are coming back and saying, well, I've gone for a commercial loan, but they want a capital interest repayment, mm. not just interest. Yeah. And with my buy-to-let mortgage, it was interest only. So I'm trying to avoid a tax bill, and I've crystallised a capital repayment mortgage, which mm. is worse for me. Mm. So I can't now have the same funding levels and the same gearing as I used to have. So I've got a bit of a problem on that. And sorry, but I'm in a five-year fixed-rate mortgage. Mm. And, and I think, you know, therein lies, you know, a good reason to, to get around a lot of lenders and to, to form a relationship with a commercial lender. I know years ago, as we went through the credit crunch, we were using buy-to-let mortgages probably 2009, 2010, but the credit crunch forced me to get around a load of commercial lenders and to build some strong long-term relationships. And what I found at that point was the rules are the rules when you start but when you've been with them a few years, the rules change because they've got all that history, they've seen you've behaved, you've, they get to know you, they come and meet you, all that sort of thing. And I know with our portfolio, you know, which, which you've transferred, Chris, we've just decided to, to you know, we, we, we've done a, a deal with a big commercial lender and they, you know, they've, they've transferred the whole lot, done us a new loan and actually we're paying less in interest than we were previously. I think the overall repayment may be slightly more because it is capital repayment. But um, 
some of them specifically the, the lender that we're using the, it's it's almost interest only there's a portion on repayment but most of it's interest only can you go in as a as a new borrower with that lender and get that probably not yeah. but with time that comes so you know I, I i do think there's a lot of value in getting to know one or two banks and doing deals with them over and over again rather than just sort of going down the high street and being a bit of a rate whore or a um, you know a kind of bank uh, a mortgage whore yeah, yeah. I mean, you've got to sort of really ha- wear a lot of hats when you look at this stuff. I mean, I had a client that, um, a prospective client came to us and said, oh, my accountant's um, done this Moyne Ramsey and it's all fantastic. And I said, uh, oh, right, okay, can I have a look at your tax return? He sent me the tax return for the previous year and he'd got rental losses. Now, by doing, by converting your rental accounts into a limited company, you, what happens about the, the rental losses brought forwards? So he had a bundle of losses that now he can't utilise in the company. See, you've really got to soak those up, haven't you? Yeah. Uh, before I know you were, you know, quite bothered about us, us soaking us up before we did. Yeah. Yeah, because you can't transfer an individual's rental losses into a limited company. You see, mm. now unless you actually investigate that, the client may you may have done them a disservice mm. because you've you've saved them one problem, but you've actually not soaked up those losses are sitting there. They're not going to go anywhere. You may as well just use them up first. Yeah. And in some instances, it may be beneficial because, like I say, they may trigger early redemption clauses on the mortgages. You may want a bit of time. And some of my clients, because as I said, the legislation is coming in over four years. The first year, only twenty five percent will take effect. So what that basically means is. 75% of the mortgage interest is under the old rules, 25% under the new rules. And some people might say, well, I'll actually ride it for a year because that's not going to be that badly affecting on my tax bill. To soak up some more rental losses, uh, some, some trading losses, which, which is important because they can be significant, especially if you've used capital allowances over the years and had refurbs and other stuff, which has is, which is created losses, yeah. So just back to the point that we were making on the limited company and how you extract money. Tax is generally more in a limited company, but I understand it's it's reducing and there might be some some allowances that we can take take advantage of. I wouldn't say tax is generally more. I mean if you look at corporation tax, when I was a trainee, bearing in mind I've been self-employed for over 30 years now, I mean the highest rate was 30% of corporation tax. And there was two rates. There's a highest rate and a lower rate. And then you've got associated company rules and things like that that, that mitigated that or, or made you be aware of what rates you had in, the, in to pay. But nowadays what happens is a flat rate of 20%. Now, 20% corporation tax is payable by all companies, irregardless of the size of the company. And the basic rate of income tax is 20%. However, corporation tax is going down to 17% in mm. 2020, so it's on a downward slide. So from that point of view, it's lower, but what you've got to bear in mind is that's the, just the rate that the company pays. If you take money out of the company, you will still have an income tax bill. So you need to decide how you take it out, when you take it out. And who takes it out. Yeah, and the other thing that's disadvantageous is the government have brought in a dividend tax. So you've got to really, when you calculate these things, you've got to look at the whole length of the ownership of the property. So for the sake of argument, if I have a property in a limited company, it's in a corporate entity, which means the company is going to pay 20% corporation tax at the moment on any profit as a chargeable gain. It could be worse if there's an ATED chargeable gain, that could be 28%. And I can explain ATED later, but... 
um, these rates could be quite penalising. So then the company pays that. So say I've got a property in there for £100,000, which is the cost of the property, and say I sell it for £200,000, the company is going to pay 20% on £100,000. So out of that 200, I'll be left with 180. And then I've got to get the 180 out of the company. Well, if I pay it by dividend, I'm going to be into the highest rate of dividends. So uh, these things can get quite penalising. So really, if you're operating within a company, there are some major advantages, which I've mentioned previously, around compounding, whereby if, if you're someone like me that doesn't necessarily spend anything like what you know uh, my company would, would make, you get that benefit of the gross roll-up, i.e. every year, let's say you make a million pounds, well, you're going to be paying shortly 170000 in tax, 17%. If you leave the money in the company, well, then the next year you've then got you know eight hundred and thirty thousand pounds to invest, you know, and, and, and to buy more. Whereas if you'd own that that property personally and you're paying forty five percent tax, you'd only have six hundred and fifty thousand exactly. pounds. And of course, those returns compound because you then get you know returns on the eight hundred and thirty thousand. It just snowballs and gets bigger and bigger. So if you're not looking to, to draw the, you know, that much, you maybe take a, a, a smallish income out over the years and, and you know, you, you'll pay less tax on that, then it can be very good. And then maybe when you come to the end, you know, a, a few years' time, maybe, you, I don't know, maybe you become non-resident or the, the, there are other options, uh, let's say, to, 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 to release some of that capital. So, um, yeah, that, that's quite interesting. I understand, you know, we, we, we certainly use a pension, as a, as, a, as a sort of corporate pension or, a, or a, an occupational pension for you know, our businesses to, to, to pay money into. And we avoid tax you know, up to a certain level every year. Um, it, you know, we get around corporation tax or, or, or uh, tax on um, partnership profits and income tax by releasing money into a pension. I understand with a SIP or a SAS, as, as we do, we can use that in some way for residential investment as well as commercial investment. Just talk to me about how you utilise pensions. So it used to be that you could make pension investments as an individual up to £40,000 a year and you get high rate relief on it. Basically, if you're a high rate taxpayer, then you could probably only get £10,000 pension payments in now. But if you've got a pension pool sitting there. Already. Already. And it might be with another provider, it might be an occupational one that, that can be released and transferred into a SIP or a SAS. Yeah, and yeah. most people prefer a SAS. And what happens is that when this thing's first started, I wasn't allowed to invest in my residential property with my pension. So what happens is that my SAS would lend to you and your SAS would lend to me. Mm. Nowadays, uh, or the way a lot of them are doing it, is that their SAS is lending money to individuals to buy rental properties. And then what happens is, given certain parameters, that the SAS is allowed to do that, and then it's just another form of lending that, that will be available to you. And, and with a SAS, you can actually borrow money you know, from it, or, or your limited company can borrow money from it, up to 50% of the value of the, the, the property. Yeah. So that is a way to, to buy a residential property. Or you can buy a commercial property with all the money in the SAS, and the SAS actually owns the property. But if you then take borrowing out on it, you, you, you can only borrow 50% of the, of the pot. 
Yeah, so this building, when I bought it, it was owned by a pension fund. Is that the building we're in now? Yeah, in Barnes, yeah. So, so this is your accountancy firm. Yeah. You've got several staff out there. This is your office, and you, you've got a retailer downstairs. Yes. So what happens is when I bought it, because the building had been opted to tax for VAT, VAT it's um, what's called a TOGC. I actually bought it because there's a sitting tenant there paying rent to me. Now, the advantage of that is that I don't then have to pay SDLT mm. on the sales price net plus VAT because the VAT is a TOGC, a transfer yeah. as a going concern. Yeah. So I pay less SDLT. Yeah. But the advantage of the previous owner of this building having the pension fund is there's no capital gains mm. tax on property in the pension fund. So his commercial property didn't pay capital gains tax. Now, the disadvantage is that when you come in to draw down on the pension, you take it out as income. So the increase in value in the pension fund is protected from capital gains tax, but you then draw it down and pay it as income tax. The other way is you buy the building, say, a commercial property in your own name, and you suffer capital gains tax upon sale. And if you work out the calculations, Generally, from a higher rate tax point of view, it's probably better to have it in your own name from, from that argument. Now, obviously, if you have it in your own name, then the rental income will be taxed on you at your highest rate. But, of course, the money that went into the pension originally, you didn't pay any tax on that money. So there's, a, there's a big advantage there. If, you've got a, if you're a higher rate taxpayer, you can only probably put 10 grand a year in. So it's probably not great for the future for higher rate taxpayers. But if you've already got a pot, you've benefited, or if you're not a higher rate taxpayer, you can offset you know, your, your corporation tax or partnership profit, uh, tax on partnership profits or your personal tax bill by transferring some of that money into a pension, offsetting it on the way in. Yeah, and I think more importantly in all of that is that my first tax lecturer used to say, which I tell my clients, don't let the tax tail wag the economic dog. So what it means is, if a loan from my pension fund means I can buy a property that I would otherwise not be able to do it, then it gets me on the property ladder and then I can have growth in that property, capital growth, that may otherwise not be in my hands in the first place. So the beauty about that is that I can actually access monies that may not be easily accessible or impossible to access in any other fashion. The only thing I would say is a slight, slight fly in the ointment is in 2016, the government said that if you buy a property with the primary view of making a gain on it, this may be subject to income tax, mm. not capital gains tax, which basically has turned its head on the approach before. And you've got to be very careful when you buy the properties. And I've seen articles where they say, well, if I buy a property, do it up prior to selling yeah. it, then there may be an argument that that is prior, the value of the property prior to me doing that is valued at that date and everything since then is going to be subject to income tax. So there's, there's some different angles and when I the, we first started this conversation I said there's been more property changes in the last three or four years. That is one of them and, and property is definitely an area that's being tackled mm. really aggressively. Yeah we've noticed this and it, it just highlights the need to really understand the rules beneath it, how the changes have affected you and just sit down with a good accountant to get them to go through your full circumstances because everyone is so different. Look at all the, you know, the, the places you get income from, where you're making your capital gain, through is it through business, is it through property, and how is it all arranged? And, and you're probably going to need to rearrange quite a lot of it to, to make it most tax efficient. 
Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is people say, well, how do you know so much about property? Well, I say, look, it's really horses for courses. You have accountants, some accountants do horse racing accounts, some of them do local councils accounts. We just do loads of property, and the more you do, the more you concentrate on it, and mm. then you get into revenue inquiries. Yeah. I mean, that's when the rubber meets the road, isn't it? Yeah. When so, you, when you, you, I mean, to give you an idea, I'm actually bringing horse racing into this, but you may remember Lester Piggott. Mm. Now, Lester Piggott, the Inland Revenue, alleged that he was getting cash on some races, and um, therefore he had something called a COP nine inquiry, Code of Practice nine inquiry. That's quite a big one, isn't it? Yeah. So, a Code of Practice nine is is about as tough as you get, and we had one of those with one of our overseas property clients, and the revenue come here. In this case, they were based in Wolverhampton. They come here. Sometimes they record it, sometimes they don't. They have very wide-ranging powers. And those type of inquiries are extremely detailed. They, they drill down and generally they're very complicated, very expensive, mm. and, and it could end up, could go badly wrong. Unfortunately, this one didn't. But you have those type of inquiries, then you go down and, and you really sort of see the metal of your accountant really as to whether they can do that. And if they haven't got previous experience of that, it could be dangerous. So in this case, that inquiry came where it, and their accountant had it, got it up to the, the start of the inquiry and said, don't want to do it, it's, it's beyond me. I mean, you, you specialise in these kind of inquiries, don't you? you? You've been through a lot of them and you've, you've learned quite a lot along the way, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, we, uh, touch wood, we haven't lost an inquiry yet. I mean, we just won one um, which you may be interested in last month, which is a first-tier tribunal level. Mm. So that's the sort of like the, the first level of Moyne Ramsey. The upper tribunal is the high court level, and that's a judicial president level. And then what happens is that you have your... Any cases you state, state legal cases, are subject to judicial precedent. So if you yeah. can find one in a higher court, so you may remember that you and I had a, a discussion with the barrister about capital allowances. Yeah. We found a House of Lords case that we put to him, and he said that would trump the revenues case. So what you're going to do is find a case that is what I call on all fours. So it's got to be the same circumstances. It's got to be pretty much exactly the same. And you can cite that to the revenue. And if you cite that, so in this first tier tribunal case, this was going on for three and a half years. There was two different inspectors. The inspectors changed. It actually went on where we, the revenue, sometimes with capital allowances, they refer that to a specialist department called the Valuation Office Agency, the VOA. And there's certain bits of the revenue where the inspector says, it's not my skill set, and I will pass it over. In this case, they pass it to the VOA. Sometimes you get things for the valuation of shares, the valuation of properties. This one was capital ounces. So at stake was about £170,000, and it's a case of whether the capital ounces could all be tax deductible. Mm. Now, the revenue will have the revenues view, the revenues approach, but whether that accords with case law, yeah. your facts, mm. doesn't necessarily mean it's the same thing. So they would take a stance, we would take a stance, and then what we've got to do is try and prove to the satisfaction of, in this case, the revenue, that, that, our, that, that we win throughout. Now, in this case, both inspectors said, well, we don't think you are, so you're going to win, so we'll pass it to the VOA. We then dealt with the VOA, and we weren't getting very well there. So you can, what's called state a case, so you can ask for an inspector to review the case, and what you've got to do is go through the procedures of the revenue 
to make sure you follow it through, but also that you can show that you've exhausted all their routes to get it checked. So if you go to, for the sake of argument, you're not happy with the revenue, you can use an adjudicator. But the adjudicator won't actually give you an answer unless you've exhausted all the mm -hmm. revenues um, mechanisms first. So we go through that, and then what happens is that we didn't get anywhere, so we referred it to the solicitor's office of the revenue. And the solicitor's office came back, and we didn't win that either. So then you can ask for something called ADR, which is Alternative Dispute Resolution. And we've been more than happy with the way this has resolved in the past. We've done ADR probably three times. So the way that works is that it, the ADR officer is an Inland Revenue employee, but completely independent of this. They're from a different part of the country often. In our case, I think they came from Southampton. And they will actually view it with the idea of forming some reasonable judgment and then say, look, if you go through this, we think that put your cases and then we'll try and mediate. And we've had some very good results. And the reason I like it is you actually see, for the first, in the old days, you could meet the inspector. Nowadays, all your correspondence goes to Bootle. Mm. Bootle then sends yeah. the correspondence around the country. The chances are that your inspector may not be the chap down the road. He could be geographically miles away. So then they actually, we have them in the office here, the ADR officer comes here, and we actually sit down and we thrash out the problems. Now, from that point of view, you can then, if you're a solicitor, sometimes you can say, well, the great thing about taking a case is disclosure. Yeah. When I get to disclosure, I see what the other side's got, mm. they show me their hands. Mm. ADR's a bit like that, because you can sit there, you can talk about it, mm. then we come in the room here and we'll work out our numbers, the inspector will work out different numbers, see if there's some way that you can actually resolve matters. In that case, they, in the inspector and the VOA officer wouldn't actually change their view. So we went to the first tier tribunal and we put our case at the first tier tribunal. And fortunately, because our case was so strong, despite everyone rejecting it so far, we stuck to our guns because I knew the case law. And there, at that stage, what happened is that the first tier tribunal, the inspector who was dealing with this, which is, which is a completely different solicitor's office, in this case in Bristol, dealing with it, they said they weren't prepared to take the case because they'd lose. So we won and we got the 170 grand. Brilliant. And, uh, you know, I think that's a, a testament to the, the effort and the time that you, you put into these, these inquiries and, and, you know, the experience that you've got with them. You've touched on a, another point there and, and something that we've used over the years quite a lot, which is capital allowances. I mean, capital allowances are very, very powerful, can be. Just explain what they are and what sort of property you can claim them on. OK, so let's take this building. Yeah. I bought this building and I paid the vendor for the purchase of the building. However, this building has assets in it that you can claim capital allowances on, such as central heating system, possibly radiators, lifts, fire safety equipment. And the great thing about this, when I first actually looked at this, is that if I claim, say, £100,000, you don't reduce the purchase price by £100,000 on your capital gains comp mm. when you sell the asset. Yeah. So therefore, that means I could claim £100,000 capital ounces, and that £100,000 capital ounces even though it's a capital purchase, mm. I can offset that against my income tax yeah. bill. Now, what you can claim is generally you're, you're pretty okay on commercial property, and we've done one with a hotel, and because the, the vendor or the seller nowadays hadn't claimed capital allowances, you could make an enormous saving on this because the hotel was so big, 
and the client had enormous capital allowances that they can claim. So roughly, what was the purchase price? Purchase price was about two and a half million and the capital allowances were £750,000. Okay, so significant. And, yeah. and a hotel or something so like that. So about maybe 20% roughly on average. Yes, yeah. but the point is that the 750 is all subject to income tax relief. Yeah. So generally speaking, what happens, you'll need a capital allowances consultant to yeah. do that and they would actually normally have two pools. You'll have a, a general pool and a special pool. Yeah. The special pool, you may only have a WDA, which is a writing down allowance, and may only be 8%. Yeah. The general pool is 18%. Yeah. However, you can claim an annual investment allowance on the purchase of those items. So you want to allocate that against your special pool first. So then anything you write down after that is at 18%. So you can claim them quicker. So in, in just simple terms, you know, for, for everybody who's listening, you often get about 20% of the purchase price in capital allowances. So let's say on that hotel, ordinarily, it depends how much, you know, plant and machinery items are in the building. But let's say you get about 20%. Let's say in that instance, 20% would be half a million of the two and a half million purchase price. And then if you do works to the building, you may then have an additional claim. So if that was held in a limited company and you had let's say half a million pounds worth of allowances and then you, you managed to, I don't know, say you had another 300 grand worth of works which were qualifying on plant and machinery, you might have about 800,000 pounds worth of capital allowances which you could claim against the corporation tax. So that could be about 150, 200,000 pounds saving. No, not quite, nearly. Yeah. Uh, the way it works is to start with, you've got to be very careful. There's, there's a special rule that if you've got a group of companies, yeah. You can only claim one AIA in the group, yeah. so you can't claim. So an AIA at the moment, the annual investment allowance is a maximum of two hundred thousand. Yeah. So if I've got three companies in my group, I yeah. can't claim two hundred, two hundred, two hundred. Yeah. I can only claim two hundred in one to yeah. start with, and you can only claim AIA in the year of purchase. Yeah. After that, it's a writing down allowance. So A, I'd be only able to get a maximum of 200. In that year. In that year. And if there's other companies in the group that have claimed it, then I can only claim the balance of that 200 yeah. that's un- been unclaimed. Then but you claim WDA. Then you claim. So say in, in that scenario where we've got, you know, say 900,000 worth, you claim the 200, but then the subsequent year, you can then get a Based part of 18% of, seven, of 700. Of 700. And then in the year after, you can get the remainder of the remainder and you can keep claiming it until it's all, all been used up against corporation tax. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. And if, if you bought it in an LLP, you could, off, you could claim all those allowances against personal tax. Well, sort of. You've got to bear in mind there's a sideways loss relief rule. Yeah. So if I've got a loss in my LLP, and I'm also a sole trader, yeah. then I can only sideways loss relief. Okay, interesting. Well, Chris, it's, it's been absolutely fascinating listening. I've, I've already learned, I mean, I've been, you know, we've been doing business together. You've been our accountant for years, but every time I talk to you, I learn a load of new stuff because you, your knowledge is vast. Lots of people out there will want to, you know, they're looking for an accountant to, to, to help them with these new changes and other things like capital allowances. I know you, you tend to deal with people a, a little bit further in their, their kind of, you know, down the road and, you know, maybe they've already got a portfolio, maybe they're already paying some tax because you're not the cheapest accountant, but that's probably because you know your stuff and you're able to, to make use of all of these reliefs. If people want to get 
in contact? How how do they do that? How do they how do they get hold of Chris? Well, what I normally say is that a on our website Wilkin Southworth, um, we've got a website. We're based in Barnes, which is um, www.wilkinsouthworth.co.uk. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, what I normally say is there's horses for courses. Mm. You will always find a cheaper accountant, and there'll be a more expensive accountant. You've got to find something appropriate for you. So if you remember the conversation that we had with the barrister, he said that basically to take it to first, first tri tier tribunal would be £25,000 on that case. In this one, what we did is we did one letter, five pages, and the revenue pulled up straight away and didn't want to take it further. So if you know your stuff, you may be able to save problems down the line. So what happens with our clients, we have a fee protection insurance. This client paid a couple of hundred quid and for our fees over three years, including the ADR, Alternative Dispute Resolution, and the uh, first tier tribunal, it was about £25,000, mm. all covered by fee protection. So Which the, is very powerful, isn't so it? So for the princely mm. sum of a couple of hundred quid, it was all covered. Yeah. So that's the benefit of a lot of these schemes nowadays. Chris, it's been, it's been fantastic. I've really enjoyed this session. I know the listeners will have got a lot of value from this. So there's nothing more for me to say other than it's been Mark Homer for Mark My Words. Mm.